Okay, so I was, um, as I frequently do, I comb through hundreds of articles just looking for pertinent things and just kind of uh, keeping a pulse on our culture and what's going on in society. Most of the stuff I don't even waste my time reading because it's not worth wasting my time reading. But reoccurring recently, more recently in the last couple of years, the reoccurring theme amongst the subject that this thing crams, you know, the algorithm looks for these kind of articles is people leaving the faith or deconstructing their faith. And I found this one very interesting. The 40 reasons I'm no longer an evangelical Christian. Now, the interesting thing is he still considered himself a Christian. And when he went to his therapist and said, gee, I don't believe this anymore. Am I still a Christian? And his therapist said, well, at least you're not an evangelical Christian. But basically, when I read through his objections, he was not what we would call a Christian. He had left the faith. And it wasn't 40 reasons. Actually, there, there's probably only about 28 good actual reasons why he left the faith. The others were just comments on things that he didn't like about Christianity. But this is, this is just, polls keep showing that more and more of the X-Jenners, the Y-Jenners, and the Z-Jenners are leaving church. They, they still have, they still understand the spiritual component and they're interested in spiritual things, but they've left the church. They don't want anything more to do with church. That's just my parents went and they blah, blah, blah. They, they don't want anything to do with church. And then once they leave church, then they start deconstructing the faith they once had. And they come up with their own amalgamation of whatever they've put together from off of social media. The most interesting thing here was that he said, reason 20 was, I have read the Christian Bible cover to cover multiple times, and I think parts of it are amazing. Well, that's good. But I also believe the Bible makes much more sense when you don't have to take it literally or view it as inerrant. Well, that explains, I don't need to read any more of the other, I don't need to read any of the other reasons he has. This reason, number 20, interesting, that's clear down here, number 20, says it all. And then if you look down to reason 22, I believe that there's plenty of truth and plenty of answers to be found both inside and outside the Bible. Well, yeah, when you're the arbiter of what's truth and you've given up the, what is the standard for truth, then yeah, you can find all kinds of truth. But it's not true truth, as like I say, Francis Schaeffer used to always say, it's not true truth because it, it's not scripturally based. Is all the truth in the world found in scripture? No. But every single thing that Scripture touches on is absolutely positively true. Whatever it talks about is absolutely true. But if you've denied the inerrancy of Scripture, then your ability to discern what is truly true in the world is hampered significantly. So given that and given this trend towards this, which we know is only going to get worse and worse because if, if people keep sending their kids to these universities and colleges that are funded by our taxpayer dollars, and they listen to professors who would wholeheartedly agree with this person's 40 reasons, then it's going to get worse and worse. So it is vital for us to understand and be able to articulate what we believe, and not as something that's just rote, as in something memorized. Now remember, it's blah, blah, da, 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 da. A, B, C, D, one, two, three. 
you have to be able to articulate what we believe. And even more than that, it's critical that our sons and daughters can do the same. It's not enough for just us. Because if we have not helped our kids understand what we believe and what they believe, if they have not embraced the Christ that we have embraced, then they will eventually, when they get out into the world, when the questions come, they won't have a good understanding and a good answer to things. Now, that guy that gave up, gave the, gave up his faith and those 40 reasons, of the real reasons that were biblical, supposed biblical reasons for giving up his faith, every single one of them was based on, what he had to say about it, was based on a misunderstanding of the doctrine or theological point he was making. It's like, well, well, you weren't paying attention or someone didn't take the time to teach you what that actually is. And so later, under the influence of all kinds of things in the world, he just said, well, I, I, that can't be true. So it's critical that we understand these things, that we get our minds wrapped around them, that we don't just pay homage to them, but that they are actually inculcated in the way that we think and interact with each other, with our family, and with the world. So I want to talk about the submission of our souls. And as I, like I prayed, this is kind of a not uh, popular topic, especially in our current political situation and even in the midst of COVID, this became very clear. Submission is probably the most misunderstood concept in our Christian lives because some people think that submission is a weakness, and it's not. Submitting is not. And if you don't, if you only pay a little bit of attention in church as a kid, you and you don't get it explained to you. Thank you, Rich. Now I have two. Thank you. I get excited about something, my mouth goes dry. What was I saying? It went. Oh, yeah, that's right. Then you're going to think, thank you, thank you. You're going to think that submission is all about what wives are supposed to do to their husbands, right? Not true. Not true. The concept of submission is woven into the very fabric of creation and our very existence, if you think about it critically. Submission is being subject to something. God wove submission into our very creation because he created the laws of physics, which makes bodies subject to certain laws, right? I mean, I don't want to get off and, and lose you and put you to sleep with the laws of physics or anything, but rudimentarily, it, or it, it's a rudimentary thing that, that we're subject to law. We're subject to the law of gravity. It's holding us on the earth. Now you say, yeah, but we can defy the laws of gravity by climbing in a plane and flying. Yeah, but guess what? That plane is subject to the laws of aerodynamics. You didn't defy the law of gravity. You superseded that law by putting the law of aerodynamics into effect. That wind over a wing surface 
creates a vacuum on, or a pressure on the backside that creates lift. And planes crash when that doesn't any longer happen. It's called a stall. And guess what? Gravity took over. You violated the laws of physics in regard to airflow over the, over the wing, and the law of gravity instantly came into play, and boom, down you go. Oh. They're almost, I, I've thought this through, and I can't think of anything where that we can just take and defy any of the laws that God has integrated into creation that we can violate without cause and effect. There aren't any. Everything is subject to something else. Everything is subject to a law or to an action. He wrote it into creation. You can't get away from it. So, the spiritual reality of submission in our lives, there are certain laws that govern that too. First of all, submitting to God in salvation. You say, wait, how do you, what, do, what do you mean submitting to God? Because God lays out the terms for salvation, right? First of all, he delineates that you, me, are broken. We cannot fix ourselves. We have violated his laws, and there is absolutely nothing we can do. We're guilty. But he offers us salvation, which is the deal. He offers us a deal, and he gives us, he sets the terms of that agreement or that deal. They're the terms for eternal life. Now, you can't negotiate those terms, can you? Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So we believe, we repent or agree, which is submitting, and confess. And we agree to the terms of salvation. And to do that, we submit. You can't negotiate. You can't say, well, okay, look, God, I, I believe I'm kind of bad. But I'm not that bad. I'm not bad as that guy. Or, okay, so save me, but I don't want to have to do this or this. There's no negotiating. You are subject to the terms of that agreement. We submit to God when we believe. You see, the other thing is that that's interesting is that faith and submission are like joined at the hip or Siamese twins or something. Because you can't, you realize that faith is a form of, just like, just like talking about submission and being subject to the laws of things is woven into creation. It, in the real world, it results in faith for us. As Richard Dawkins used to say, and I've said this before, that he said, I wish I could eradicate the term faith out of the English language because he just doesn't like that word faith. Well, guess what, Richard? Every time you climb on a plane and you fly somewhere, you are exercising an extreme amount of faith because you're placing your faith in the law of aerodynamics, but more than that, you're placing your faith in that pilot, in the ground crew, 
and the mechanics that maintain that plane, you are exercising faith that they did everything they were supposed to do so that that plane won't fall out of the sky. So you, you are actually subject to or submissive to the guy flying that plane or the mechanic that made sure that that bolt was tight. We even exercise faith in sitting in the chairs that you're, you're exercising faith right now, sitting in those chairs. Do you know that? Because if you didn't believe that that chair would hold you, you wouldn't sit down in that chair, right? If the chair looked sketchy and that it wasn't going to hold you, you'd say, I don't, I don't believe that chair will hold me. So you wouldn't sit in it. But unconsciously, you sit in that chair, exercising faith that the chair will hold your weight. So faith and submission, they're, they're like, they're twins. So we agree and we submit to God. The very act of believing and exercising faith is an act of submission as well. So our very life in Christ begins with submission. No one ever has accepted that Christ died for them, admitted it, and then shook their fist at God and said, but I'm going to live my own life. That, that's, you're, you're not going to live your own life. Yeah, you're going to live your own life. That is not the life of Christ. You are not, that, you're, you're, salvation is not in your wheelhouse because it takes submission. That's why it's very, very important that we always, when we communicate the gospel, we need to be very clear about the gospel. The clarity of the gospel is so important, absolutely important. The next thing we submit to is the Spirit of God. So we submit to God himself in the act of believing and exercising our faith, but we also submit to the Spirit of God. Because we have to submit to let the helper help us live this life now that we're submitted to God. We're, he doesn't just cut us loose and we're on our own. He gives us the helper. And we are not mindless and helpless, okay? My example here is a kid, a young kid that's just learned to tie his shoes, and he's struggling. He's, he's, he's finally got frustrated with tying his shoes, and he throws himself down, and he's, I can't do it. Would you like me to help you? Yes. Now, if you're truly going to help him, you're going to get him to sit up and you're going to show him, okay, take the laces, do it like this. this. You're not helping him if he just lays there and you tie his shoes for him while he's carrying on and thrashing around. That's not helping him. You see, that's what we are. We're little kids. Can't always get our shoes tied. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, comes along to help us. But he doesn't do it for us. He helps us. There are no RCCs in the Christian faith. There are no remote control Christians. The Holy Spirit does not have the remote. And it, we're not like drones and he's not controlling us. Some people, can say, okay, I, just, I gave my life to Christ and the Holy Spirit's supposed to control me now. No. We are not remote control. He is there to help us. So we have to do that. It's a cooperative. 
And when we look at this Greek word, the domestic application of this Greek word, there's a military and a, a domestic or familial application of the Greek word, how it can be used, is a voluntary attitude of giving in or cooperating. You like that? Cooperating. How do you like the word giving in? I don't know, nobody likes to give in. I'm not going to give in. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give in to the Spirit. He wants to help us. So that's that's submitting to the that's submitting to God, submitting to the Spirit, and then submitting to the Word of God. That's maturity. That's where the maturity comes. Is when the Word of God is our final authority for everything that we do and say and think. And we just we need to stop whining and fussing and arguing about what we should and shouldn't do, and we should just do what the Word says. Is it really that hard? Well, it is, but it's, that's what the Christian life is, hard work. And again, it's a voluntary attitude of giving in and cooperating. But we have to remember, too, that this never-ending war, we were called out of this, and, and, if, and if you weren't a rebel before you got saved, we often don't think about this. Rebellion is what broke the world. Rebellion broke the world. But submission is what saved the world. Did you ever think about that? Rebellion broke the world. Submission is what is saving the world. Christ's submission. And we find this struggle between submission and rebellion all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's everywhere in the scriptures, is it not? Yeah, it is. And we all know the recipe for rebellion. You take a lie, you take an extra large dose of pride, you mix it thoroughly, a little bit of time passes, and the original recipe came from Lucifer himself. Because that's how he rebelled. He believed a lie. He told it to himself enough, he believed it. Then he shared the recipe with Adam and Eve. And the recipe still to this day renders the same result. Rebellion against God. It does not, it does not produce cooperation with God. It produces rebellion against God. The results of that rebellion against God, unfettered, unchecked, believing a lie, is put on full display, as Paul put it so plainly in Romans the first chapter, verses 28 to 31. And just as they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. Which that, I think that pretty much covers every category that we were before we came to Christ. Now, maybe in varying degrees, maybe lesser degrees, maybe greater degrees, but I think that pretty much covers it. Before Christ, that was us as a rebel. That's what rebels do, unchecked. And the worst kind of rebel is the rebel that actually says there is no God. 
It's the worst kind of rebel. That rebel wreaks the most havoc in, in a society or a culture. Currently, in our society, in our culture, there are three greatests that I think of. Three greatests right now that are in force that these rebels are perpetrating. The greatest, the greatest con of our current existence is the con that there isn't a creator, that it's just physical processes that got us here. And the offshoots of that being theistic evolution, somehow trying to marry evolution and creation together somehow, progressive creation, same thing, and now young earth evolutionists. Will they never stop? Yeah, the earth is young, but it evolved. Oh my goodness, please. But that's the greatest con of our time. Do you realize how much of our society believes that? It's unbelievable. Do you realize how much of taxpayers' money are spent on grants to prove evolution? But don't you dare say anything about creation or God. Don't you dare. Now, the greatest corruption of our society, I believe, is this, con is this attitude of I can do anything I want, I can say anything I want, and I can be anything I want. It's the corruption of the soul. If you think you can do that and not pay a price, you're sadly, sadly wrong. You drank the Kool-Aid. You can't do anything you want without repercussions. You can't say anything you want without repercussions. And you can't be anything you want. You can't be whatever gender you want to be. You can't be a creature. You can't be some other race. You can't be a furry. You can't. You can't. In your mind, you can, and you can... Role play that out in your life. But you are fooling nobody. Most of all, you are not fooling God. But you've rejected him, so I guess that doesn't matter. And the greatest threat to our existence is what do you think? The greatest threat. The greatest threat is the lie that it's not a life, it's just fetal tissue, it's my body, and it's my choice. Folks, it's not just wrong according to God's word. It's wrong because it's a threat to our existence. Because if that's all it is, then what is the value of life? And if you can slaughter millions of unborn, it's a threat to our existence because no nation, no civilization, no society can survive the destruction of your future potential. This is what no one wants to bring up in, the, in this debate. I've never heard anybody do it. How do you know you didn't abort the person who was going to discover the, the cure to breast cancer? Well, yeah, but you could have also aborted the next Hitler. Well, that's a straw man argument. You are literally destroying the potential of your future when you kill the unborn by the millions. So it's actually a threat to our existence. People just don't get that. So we have to think about the world we live in because we share this world with the rebels. Now, we're, we're saved. We're not rebels anymore. And we're learning to submit. But we live in this world of rebels. They're all around us. 
And we also have to share the gospel with these rebels, even though they're growing worse and worse and crazier and crazier. We have to share the gospel with them. And we can't forget that we were once rebels also. Now, maybe not to that radical extent, but it doesn't really matter to God. A rebel is a rebel. We were once a rebel. We were once at war with God. Now, let's take the analogy of, in order to make this real clear, or somewhat clear, maybe not, maybe they'll muddy the waters, I don't know. But let's take the analogy of the river of life. Everyone is going down the river of life. Everyone. All of us. We were going down the river of life. And you can paint that picture however you want. Rapids, waterfalls, or a serene floating along on inner tubes, having a good time, and all of that. But we were all headed in the same direction. We were all headed in the same direction. But there's something we have to remember. Once we are no longer rebels, we're going the other direction. Do you realize that? We are paddling upstream. We're not going the same direction anymore. The direction of the rebel is destruction. We are not. We're going the opposite direction. Because we've been changed. What we're not supposed to be doing is we're not supposed to be giving away life preservers on this river that says Jesus saves on it. And say, hey, here, have this. Okay, see you, bye. You realize that's what some preachers and churches today do? They're just handing out personal flotation devices with Jesus saves embroidered on them. It does nothing. That person is still floating down the river in the wrong direction, going with the flow. We're not floating down the river along with them so we can make them comfortable with their current direction. Hey, hope you have a good day. We're going down the river, float with you. Well, I got to leave now. I got to go. I got to swim upstream. Have a nice life. That's not, that's, that's what some people do. And we shouldn't be camped on a sandbar somewhere, passing out Gatorade, and then having little sessions to help them, help people love themselves so that they can love Jesus. Do you know that that's a thing? Well, you got to learn to love yourself so you can love others and love Jesus. That doesn't save anybody. That does not get them from going this way down the river to going upstream, up the river. Well, where are you going, man? When you go down this river, where are you going? Well, I heard that it empties out into this huge lake, man. There's lots of people there. It's just like this party forever. Yeah, right, sure, uh-huh. The name of the lake is the Lake of Fire. Yeah, right, that's real good. Do you realize the rate at which people are just flowing down that river and they're headed for the lake of fire? We are going against the flow. We are swimming upstream and we're trying to convince people that they're going the wrong direction. And yes, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to build a party barge and say, oh no, there's nothing at the end of this river. There's no lake of fire. I got it all figured out. And this here party barge of mine will, can take care of anything. 
Those are all conventions of the mind that people tell themselves because they refuse to submit. They're rebels. They refuse to submit to God. And we have to rescue them from their thinking. We have to rescue them off those party barges floating down the river. Now, some people are in jet boats going at 90 miles an hour to the headed for the lake of fire. Sometimes they're the hardest to reach. Some people are having a good old time just floating along. Those are the people we have to reach. So it's imperative that we understand. We were once rebels. And this is imperative for our young people to understand. We're swimming upstream. We are not rebels going downstream anymore. And that's hard to convince people that, hey, get out of your inner tube and give up your beers and let's get in my kayak or my canoe and let's paddle upstream. That's crazy. The easiest thing to do is float downstream. But we have to be convinced that that's the way it is. Otherwise, our kids won't be convinced. And I have to wonder... <clears throat> When we talk about negotiating, we submit—excuse me—we submit to the terms of salvation. And I have to wonder if maybe that this reference in Matthew, the seventh chapter, where Jesus said, "Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter." Many will say to me on that day, "But Lord." Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name we cast out demons and in your name we performed many miracles? And then I, the Lord Jesus, will say, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. When I read that, I wondered, are, were they negotiators? Did they think that they were going to get into heaven by negotiating? Because what they saw was a way, if they negotiated some kind of deal with God, they could use his power and do these things for him, and he let them in. I think they might have been negotiators because they didn't submit to God. So they were still rebels at heart. And Jesus said, I never knew you because you never submitted. Interesting thing. Now, the world of reality, the world reality of submission is this. In Hebrews 13, 17, and this is talking about spiritual leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that you may do this with joy, or so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. And that's a pretty clear reference to the spiritual teachers in the church. And this Hebrew word here is about surrendering or to resist no longer, okay? The voluntary attitude of giving in or cooperating or assuming responsibility and carrying a burden is a Greek word that we find in, in 1 Peter, the second chapter, about submitting yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this is the cooperation. This is cooperating. This is not being resistant. This is cooperating. In James 4, 7, it's interesting because this is the only place you'll find submitting and resisting in the same verse. But it's submit to God and resist the devil and then in Ephesians 5.21, and subject yourself or be in submission yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. And that's where Thayer in his Greek um, dictionary says, this word is a Greek military term, meaning how you arrange in a military fashion under a commander or leader. But in the non-military use, which this is, it's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, 
assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. So you, you see, it's, it's active. It's not passive. It's not, okay, just whatever. Okay, spirit, God, make me do what I'm supposed to do. It's not. It's, it's cooperation is what it is. And obviously, if you're cooperating, as Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with every man. Well, the best way to be at peace is to cooperate, right? And there's parameters to that, I know. And then 13, Romans 13, 1 through 5, about being subject to authorities. Now, refusing to submit to authorities over you because to do so would violate Scripture or cause you to deny, to deny Christ, that's different. And when you stand up for that, you involve yourself in a different kind of submission. And you may not have thought about it this way. When you do that, which an untold number of Christians have submitted to another form, it's martyrdom. Because you say to that authority, no, what you're asking me to do is contrary Christ, I can't do that. And so you submit to martyrdom because you know it's going to, you know that's what it's going to mean, or something worse. I say worse because it could be imprisonment, it could be torture, it could be something worse. But you're submitting to that when you choose not to submit to that authority because of what it's asking you to do. At the same time, you're submitting to the consequences of that. So you don't get out of not submitting. You see that? It follows us. It chases us everywhere. And then, of course, there's the concept of submitting to spiritual authority. The local pastor and elders, and that's the Hebrews 13, 17 that I just mentioned before. This submission here and understanding this submission and not doing it has divided more churches than you could possibly count. The subtle rebellion of holding yourself to be an equal or greater authority than your pastor and or the church leadership. That's very, very dangerous. If you hold yourself to be of equal or greater authority than the leadership. Because you see, when, when I came to this little body of believers... Whatever I thought, whatever my opinions, whatever my assessment of myself was, I subjugated that to the leadership of this church. You know why? To be safe. It was a haven. There is safety. Now, I know, I know, there's the crazy pastors that go off the brink and people follow them and they go and they I, I understand that but that was not the case here I did my homework I knew that the teaching from this pulpit and from this pastor was solid and sound and he was a man I could trust and I could trust my family too with his teaching boy was that a relief You know what? There's been people. It's just like I think of Henry Morris. Henry Morris was ridiculously smart. He was ridiculously humble. 
and ridiculously spiritual, humanly speaking. But when he went to church, he did not see himself in any way equal to or greater than his pastor in the pulpit. Because he was submissive. If we're not, this is actually a subtle but real rebellion against God. Remember Korah? That the, Korah and his followers were not evil people. They just were full of themselves, and they held themselves to be equal to Moses or even greater than, because they called Moses out and said, hey, who made you leader? Ah, key point. Who made you leader? God did. He is your leader. And they didn't want to follow him. And you know the con consequences there. And here are the dangers of holding yourself to be equal to or greater than God's spiritual authority. What's going to happen is you're going to, pride is going to come in. You're going to, you're going to become a narcissist is what you're going to become. And it's kind of, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Were you a narcissist first and the pride came in or would the pride come in and then you're a narcissist? Whatever, it's not worth discussing. But what happens is if you continue down this path, and I've seen it in people, you will become disrespectful, disrespectful to all authority. If you're just kind of putting up with the authority in the church because you think you're on the same level, then you're going to start taking the same attitude with all authority, including the California Vehicle Code. It may not apply to you all the time. It's going to cause dissension in the body of Christ. It always will. It always will. And you will become discontent with just about everything and or everyone. You'll start complaining because you're holding them to a different standard. And you will deny the help of the helper. And he's not going to help you. You're the equivalent of the little kid laying there. You asked him if he wanted help tying his shoes and he's kicking and screaming and you're not gonna, the helper's not gonna help you. Life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. It really is. Stupid is not a derogatory term, by the way. Stupid comes from the Latin word stupor. And it means lacking sense and sensibility. And I run into people all the time that lack sense and sensibility or good common sense. Christians need a good dose of common sense. Now we get to the big submit. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. And the guys always go, yep, okay, wives submit. I just have to love them and I'll submit to Christ. Well, the submit here is that Greek word, which means to cooperate. It isn't some, do you know how many books are written on this verse telling women what it is to, be, to submit to their wives? And they do it in the vacuum of not even explaining that our whole life is submission. The Christian's whole life is submission. So this should not jump out of the page at us. It shouldn't be like, oh, wives have to be submissive to their husband. Do you, do you realize how many Christian cults have been established on that? How many Christian cults say that a young lady, if she isn't married before she leaves the household, she still has to answer to her, her dad? Those poor women missionaries that said, I can't find a good man to go to the mission field with me, so I'm just going. My, 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 shame on them. They should not have done that. 
Yeah, the gospel wouldn't have got into some of the corners of the world had they not gone. This is basically what gets to happen with a woman is she gets to submit to her husband and cooperate with him. And he has to do the heavy lifting. It's really, it's simple. And remember, it's not unconditional submission. That's not what submission is. It's cooperation. And it's the same submission that we're to have towards governments and authorities. You're cooperating with them to maintain peace. And just like a government, if a husband demands something that is directly in violation of Scripture, then submission turns to standing your ground. It's a choice you have to make. But stand your ground, you should and you must. Because submission is not mindless. Commonly phrased, the wife submits, the husband loves. But the husband is told to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Loving, giving, submitting. And the husband is reminded of Christ's example. And this is Christ's example. The ultimate example of submission. That Christ himself submitted to his father to, first of all, take on human form. Second of all, to be mistreated and falsely accused and then horrifically murdered on a cross. That's what he submitted to. He cooperated with his father in order to do what? Save us. To save us rebels. To save us fist-shaking-in-his-face rebels. And that's the example that husbands are given to love the church, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church so much that he submitted to all of that. And the ultimate example of human rebellion, I'm going to contrast these, is when the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. They know it's coming from God. They realize that this is coming from God, and they still blaspheme him and will not honor him as God. In the end, this is in the end. They still won't. That's the ultimate rebellion. The final submission, however, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they not only confess that God exists, but they're going to confess that the whole of the gospel is true. What they denied is absolutely true. They will be forced to submit in the end. And submission should be our way of life. It isn't hard or difficult, but it is work to submit. Let me tell you, hard and difficult is pleading with God to help you clean up your mess because you weren't cooperating with the helper. That's difficult. Okay, I speak from existence. I know it all too well. Because I've done the me, Tarzan, you, Jane thing. 
I've played that scenario out and it does not end well or it does not go well for all parties involved. It's a big mess to clean up. And you're really sorry in the end that you did it. Well, hopefully, if you submit. Fanny Crosby learned it, and most likely she learned it the hard way. Fanny Crosby actually got married and then separated from her husband, so who knows what all went on there. But Fanny Crosby, in her hymns, she gets it, because this is what I'm going to end with. She wrote a song, Blessed Assurance. Assurance is another word for hope. I kind of use them interchangeably, assurance. Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit and washed in his blood. It's the gospel. Perfect submission. Interesting that she uses that. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Now, here's the question for you. Is that your story? Is that your song? Is that my story? Is that my song? Am I praising my Savior all the day long, regardless? That's what we need to do. And the only way you can properly do that is to submit. Is to submit. That's what Christ did. That's what we're celebrating this morning. It's exactly what Christ did. And that should be our story. And that should be our song, that we praise our Savior all the day long. Are you? <laughs>